0: Good morning, Mars family. This morning, we are reading from Ephesians 5, 3. I'm, I apologize. Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 13. Don't get older. It's very difficult to read. <laughs> we are going to be on page 1082 if you have your shed Bible. So once again, we're in Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 13. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children as light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Imagine this scenario with me. It's early morning, 5 AM, and it's still dark outside. Everyone and everything in your house is still asleep. It is now time to play a game I like to call, Don't Wake em Up. <laughs> the object of this game, is to get out of bed and make it undetected from your room to the kitchen for your morning beverage without anyone else noticing you. This is harder than you might think. How do you find your way through the darkness? If you're like me, you sit on the edge of the bed, and you stand up really slowly, you run your hand along the edge of your bed so that you don't bump into any, what I call, Lego landmines on the floor. You allow your eyes to adjust, and if your house is like mine, you get to the top of the staircase, and then you strategically pick which parts of the floorboard to tiptoe down, almost like a secret code, so the floors don't creak. And then when you get to the bottom, you breathe, and you have your coffee or tea. You have conquered the darkness by adapting to it. Some of us find ourselves this morning awake, And yet, in the midst of a very different, real-life kind of darkness, you feel absolutely directionless, perhaps, facing a decision where there's a fork in the road and you're not sure which fork to take. Or perhaps you feel as if, whether you turn to your left or your right, you are literally running into darkness all around you. Your job is sucking the life out of you. Someone you love, perhaps even yourself, is chronically ill. A relationship that you've spent years investing in is broken this morning, seemingly beyond repair. Perhaps some of us are facing the knowledge of something we've done, and we haven't told anyone and we're swimming in a marsh of shame. How do you find your way through that kind of darkness? Saint John of the Cross says, the endurance of darkness is preparation for great light. If we haven't met, my name is Ashley. I'm one of the pastors here. And as we enter into this fourth Sunday of Lent, even in circumstances like the past few moments, when a darkness descended that you did not expect, and considering the darkness not just around us but in us in the form of sin, how do we fix our hearts in preparation for great light even when it is so very dark? Just last week, Troy explained how the lectionary texts that we are walking through in this Lenten season communicate in relationship to one another. And for last week, all the texts surrounded a theme of water and thirst. For this week, our texts invite us to consider situations where darkness has descended. Starting here in Ephesians 5, the text that Susie read for us this morning, we may remember from our journey through First Timothy, if you were with us last fall, that Paul is writing to a church community in Ephesus that finds itself in relationship to a place that seems, seems culturally vibrant and lively. It is a central hub of trade, and yet it is a place that is steeped in cult worship. The center of that cult worship being, if you remember, the Temple of Artemis. So in this section of text, Paul is instructing the Ephesian church how to find its way, how to conduct itself morally in contrast to contemporary society. If we rewind to the last chapter before the one that Susie read, chapter five, if we go back to chapter four, verse 17, You'll hear Paul say to the Ephesian church, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. This word darkened means to be obscured or to be literally blinded in the original language. And so he continues in chapter 4 reminding them of what they've been taught. Teachings like, put off your old self. Like, put off falsehood in your anger. Do not sin. If you've been stealing, cut it out, stop it, and so forth. Until we now arrive in chapter 5, verse 8. Here's the why that Paul offers them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And he tells them, live as children of light. I confess, when I first read this text, I read it too quickly. If you look carefully, Paul's starting place for the Ephesian church when it came to them navigating the darkness so evident as part of their cultural moment wasn't just to focus on the particulars of Ephesus, the place, as the proverbial dark room. The text doesn't say, you were once in darkness, but now you are in light. His starting place was asking them to remember not their location primarily, but their identity. He says, you were once darkness. You were once blinded and obscured, but now you are light. Now you are light in the Lord. The other three texts for this Sunday introduce us to three people who are navigating a kind of darkness of their own. So what I'd like to do this morning is spend a few minutes on each person looking at both their environment, the darkness that they are in, But I also want to look at their identity, their understanding of their identity in hopes that we as a Jesus people, for the sake of the world, might fix our hearts to endure darkness as light. So our first text, if we go to the Old Testament, is in 1 Samuel chapter 16, recalling this little sub-story, a prophet's vision. A prophet's vision. Let's talk about Samuel's environment just a moment. The prophet Samuel is being sent into a situation where he's essentially anticipating needing to feel his way around a dark room. He is sent by God to Jesse of Bethlehem because he's been told by the Lord that the Lord has chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king. So Samuel understandably, has some questions about this. And he's thinking through his very own little Lego landmine, if you will, in the form of King Saul. Because if Saul, he thinks, hears of this, he thinks that Saul will surely harm him. He will be in harm's way. But he goes anyway. And he's instructed to anoint the one that God indicate. So here's what happens. First Samuel 16 verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Surely he does. It's right here. Now let's pause a moment and I want to take a quick detour to borrow from the fields of psychology and modern day behavioral economics to talk about cognitive bias. If you're not familiar, cognitive bias is a term used that researchers like to describe a systematic error in how people perceive others or their environment. So what happens is individuals filter or perceive information based on their own past experiences. Researchers say when an individual constructs their own subjective social reality, based on their past perceptions and not on objective input, we classify that kind of behavior as being cognitively biased. Now, you could go online and find, at least up to this point, 200 different kinds of cognitive biases. Just one you could find is called the halo effect. And essentially what the halo effect is, it's a physical attractiveness stereotype whereby people who are considered attractive tend to be also perceived as being competent or reliable in other areas of their life. So someone might say, oh, she's dressed sharply. She must be well organized and have her finances in order. Or someone might look at someone like Jesse's sons who looks attractive on the outside and say oh he looks great he must have the makings of a great king now I don't think Samuel was flipping through Forbes online and like digging deep into his own cognitive biases but there's something about what he sees that makes him say Surely, surely this is him. But here's how the Lord responds. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. That's good news for those of us who wanted to be taller here in West Michigan. That's my husband, (laughs) Delwin. We're a short family, we are. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord, the Lord looks at the heart. It's really interesting to me because later there will be echoes from another prophecy from Isaiah concerning Jesus is suffering servant Isaiah 53 he was despised and rejected by men a man of many sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not Samuel was looking outward the Lord was looking inward So as we consider the environments that we're navigating, where we're trying to discern what kind of decisions to make, enduring darkness and being our identity, being light in the Lord, means our lenses will align with what God looks at. During Lent, we practice sacrifice. Some of us perhaps enter into the discipline of giving something up for Lent. And we fast, we enter into fasting because we are trying to say to God, Lord, I want to be completely dependent on you. I want to lean on you for my provision. And I I feel like we see in, in this text, in each of the texts this morning, a sort of trade in. What would we say that Samuel had to trade in in order to say yes and be in agreement with God's vision. I might pose to us that Samuel had to give up his self-sufficiency. He needed to be willing to rely on a vision that was not his own. I imagine it this way. Samuel was standing there with Jesse, anticipating this feast, and, and he's running out of sons. I imagine the first son passing, nope, that's not him. The second one going by, not him either. The third, the fourth, the fifth. By this time, church, I confess to you that if I had been on the fifth son and it looked like I was about to run out of people, I might very well step into relying on my own gut and my own vision just to make something happen, just to make something come to fruition. I might be anxious, and yet Samuel continue to rely on God's sight. He sends for David, the youngest, a shepherd who wasn't even called in to eat at that point. It doesn't make sense according to Samuel's cognitive bias. And yet God instead prioritizes looking at the condition of man's heart. Though I think it's kind of funny that we're also told David was handsome as well. It's like, yes, he is good looking, but that's not, that's not what we're looking at here. So the first invitation for us is to ask the Lord what he sees that you're not seeing yet. Whether you're in a position to hire someone new at work or you're looking for a job, for those of us who are interested in being in a romantic relationship and we're actively looking for someone to date, what, it, what is it that the Lord might see that you don't see yet? Our second little sub story comes from that all familiar text, Psalm 23. And we move from a prophet's vision to a shepherd's journey. That shepherd boy, David, has become king. And he writes this psalm from his new role, his new place as king. The title shepherd was used metaphorically in Israel and other ancient nations as a title for a king or a leader. And yet it's interesting what David does here. He was a shepherd, now a different kind of shepherd, but he too finds himself in a dark environment. Verse 4, he writes, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As David walks, he is walking through darkness and for those of you who feel like you are walking through a season of darkness not just because it's lent but because one thing after another keeps happening the other shoe has dropped more than once you know that darkness as our environment can slow us down it can cause us to doubt to hide to stay paralyzed or to start swinging. Um, It's the reason why this pastor here doesn't do haunted houses, because I would be most likely on our staff to accidentally deck a demon in the nose, and some of y'all would have to bail me out. Darkness can cause us to move differently. And yet, we find ourselves encountering a former shepherd now king, enduring darkness, who's identified himself as a sheep. He declares not, I am the good shepherd, the good king, the good leader, but verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. He doesn't call him a rock, a strong tower, or even a deliverer. See, as a sheep, David is communicating the intimacy of that relationship, identifying as one who's wise and strong in battle, but is a pretty vulnerable and visually limited little fluff ball also. See, sheep have excellent peripheral vision to 300 degrees they can see peripherally and they can see behind themselves that means without turning their heads it's why when you see a sheep you're like why are their eyes Jesus on the side of their heads well let me tell you saints it serves a purpose they can see to the side and behind them but they have terrible depth perception they cannot see right in front of their noses. I was trying to show Pastor Tim a little uh, reel on Instagram the other day where there was a sheep who got caught in a ditch. Some dude gets sheep out of the ditch. And guess what sheep does? Runs right back into the ditch. Just goes right back. David, the shepherd, is now the sheep. Sheep. And in the darkest of places, darker than your hallway at 5 a.m., we're talking the shadow of death here. The shadow that death casts, reminding you of how close it is, of how present it is. David fixes how he moves, not based on the threat of darkness, but on the truth that God's presence is with him in that dark shadow of a place as light, enduring darkness and being light in the Lord, means our progress will be based on our confidence in God's presence, not directed by the intensity of the dark valley. What was the thing that David had to potentially sacrifice in order to make that kind of journey? I would say ignorance One thing would be the ignorance of evil. Walking as light in Christ doesn't mean we will be able to avoid evil. David doesn't say that evil won't be present. He declares that he'll refuse to fear it. And so the second invitation for us is to ask the Lord to be your shepherd and lead you, even when and even where evil is present? Are you willing to take the posture of a sheep, admitting your own vulnerability? I love the prayer that we just prayed and our prayer of confession, our own short-sightedness, our need for a present and reliable leader along the path. As I was preparing, I thought of potentially some of us in our community who are scared to enter into important conversations because we don't know how they'll go. We're scared of conflict or perhaps that someone will not like us anymore that we'll lose something important to us. Should we choose to enter in? Perhaps some of us feel a fear to speak up on behalf of current present-day injustices that you've seen perpetuated over And over again, because it's too dark, it's too paralyzing, there are too many opportunities and risks in the way. I want to say this is one of the reasons why, as a leadership team, we're prioritizing significant conversations as a part of our annual plan because we want, even structurally, there to be an accountability to this, that even in or despite darkness, we don't want to fear what lies ahead. We want to walk through knowing God is with us. God, where am I claiming ignorance where I know you're asking me to make a fearless journey? For some of us, that's the trade-in this morning. Finally, we get to John 9. We're calling this a blind man's transformation. In our final text here in John's gospel, we encounter a man who we're told was born blind his whole life. His whole life had been lived in a perpetual, literal darkness. And that darkness was accompanied by societal assumptions that his condition was brought on either by his sin or the sin of his family. I think it's so interesting that the text subtly says Jesus sees him. Jesus sees him, then eventually spits on the ground, making mud from dirt with his saliva, puts it on the blind man's eyes, and tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam meaning scent, which will be important here in a minute. I love this painting. By now, y'all might know, I love visually engaging the text. This is... Um, a painting by a late 19th century French artist named James Tussaud. I think it's so interesting that we see the man in this act of rinsing the mud from his eyes with others present. How That must have felt to not know who's around, but to say yes to Jesus anyway. This man washes and he goes home seeing. So even though Jesus ends up healing this man's physical sight... What becomes clear is that the perpetual condition of this man's darkness had defined his entire life. His blindness had turned him into a beggar. It had characterized how he appeared to others. Others were used to seeing him in his blindness. Some didn't recognize him healed, the text says. His blindness had so defined him that some were more interested in figuring out the mechanics as to how the darkness, how his blindness had been driven away, more interested in when it happened. They were like, well, you can't do that on the Sabbath. More interested in who had healed him. Is this due to profit? He must have been a sinner. That they could not see or receive the miracle of his transformation. They were allowing themselves to be so consumed by the man's condition that they were made blind. In the words of the formerly blind man, John 9, 25, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This man wasn't just healed of his physical sight, He was wholly transformed. He was blind, and Jesus made him one with a mission, sending him to the place that meant sent, involving him in his own healing. He went from being a beggar to being someone with a bold testimony, from being an outcast to a disciple, from being known as a sinner to a worshiper. Church, enduring darkness and being light in the Lord means we will recognize and take part in the work of transformation. But that means you got to give something up. And at least one of those things is pride. This man's healing came with an unusual, irreverent how. Some of us would likely want the healing. But if I heard Jesus hocking up spit, enough spit to make mud from dirt, again, I confess, I might say, Jesus, you know what we just came out of these past couple years? Keep your loogie-laden mud spit Away from my face. Could you just imagine for a moment someone trying to touch your eyes with spit mud? We might want the healing, but we don't want the healing like that. We might want the healing, but we might be too self-absorbed To say, I don't want to go anywhere, I don't want to risk walking down those steps, not finding my way, seeing other people see me approach this pool. I just want the healing Jesus, I don't want you to send me anywhere for it. Our need for the right mechanics get in the way of a miracle being realized. Are you willing to lay down your pride and not have all the answers that you learned back in VBS? You may not be believed. You may even be insulted as this man was insulted, but are you willing to sacrifice your pride to take part in the transformation that Jesus is doing on this earth? The last invitation, if you're willing, is to ask the Lord to heal you from pride, from your own spiritual blindness. Just the other day, Delwyn came to me. And he was stroking this, his chin hairs. And he said, you know what, babe? I think I'm going to cut this. Just cut it off. And without hesitation, I yelled, no! Don't do it! Don't do it, because if you do it, it'll feel like I'm sleeping with a stranger. I don't want, I don't want you to cut your chin hair. I'm used to seeing your face like this. I'm used to it. Don't. Touch it. And in that moment, I realized, oh, Lord, there's some things you're wanting to cut that I'm real quick to resist. God, how am I resisting or even completely blind to the work of transformation you long to do in and around me? How am I resisting being exposed by Christ, light of the world? Paul writes, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Esau McCulley has a beautiful new book out. It's a part of a series. This book is on Lent, and he writes, we see the inadequacy of our former way of life in the light of the holiness of God's Son. Complacency with our personal sins is a danger, but so is accepting the sinfulness of the world as an unchangeable reality. See, church, living our identity as children of light means that even in dark rooms, we walk knowing that in Jesus was life and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not, overcome it. God is illuminating the darkness, restoring and transforming. May we fix our hearts on what the light of the world is exposing, both around and even in us. So here's what I want to do before we go to the table. I'm going to ask the lights to be turned down again. And we've, we've been teaching that worship is dialogue. And I wonder, as we've encountered these texts this morning, what you sense stirring in you, the thing that you feel that the Holy Spirit might want to illuminate and bring into the light so that you may walk as light. The situations you're up against, where the Spirit wants to reassure you that the Lord Is present. The places where you've reached your end, but you're like, I'm willing to be a sheep. So here are these prompts. Ask Holy Spirit, what is it the Lord sees that I don't see yet? To be your shepherd and lead you, to heal you from spiritual blindness. Maybe just pick one and would you dialogue with the Lord about what might want to be exposed today so that we may walk as a Jesus people as light. Take time now.